If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This week, I'm pleased to present Carolyn Abraham, who will be presenting on the topic of lung transplant and dysphagia and the outpatient perspective. I was so thrilled for this topic to come up with Carolyn. Um, I think it's so interesting. I'm really looking forward to learning more about the anatomy changes that affect breathing and swallowing after a lung transplant procedure, um, some of the ongoing concerns that this population is faced with that we can help um, manage and work with them on in the outpatient sphere. And it was just really fun to sit down with Carolyn and just ask her all these questions about, you know, what's our role here? How are we rehabilitating um, swallow function in this population? Um, Because it's a little bit fragile, right? So it was really insightful, um, really fun time, great conversation. So happy that Carolyn was able to join me on the podcast to share this really interesting information with everybody. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's get into today's topic. All right. Welcome, Carolyn Abraham. I'm so pleased to have you on the Speech Uncensored podcast to talk about lung transplant and dysphagia from the outpatient perspective. Like, this is exciting. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. Awesome. Yeah. I think um, I've really only heard about, um, you know, care for this population you know, post-surgery while they're still in acute care. So I'm really interested to see what kind of more of that long-term kind of care they need that I think of when I think of outpatient. So this is going to be super cool. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) All right. Um, So before we jump into our topic, Carolyn, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I've been a speech pathologist for a little over 10 years now, I did some travel therapy in my experience and have recently, I guess in the last four years, have been working in a large outpatient organization uh, or a large hospital organization where there's an outpatient uh, clinic that's pretty large as well. Um, we specialize in all kinds of things, but I get to specialize in some specific things, including the lung transplant population, um, as well as head and neck cancer. And then I get some little bits of that neuro population as well. So strokes, brain injuries. So I see the full gamut, um, but I really feel like I specialize in swallowing and I become kind of the outpatient guru for these transplant population. I'm one of the few outpatient speech pathologists that will see these patients before and after their transplant. So it's really a, a cool thing to be a part of, especially in a vibrant organization that I work for. That sounds awesome. And I love that you just mentioned before and after in my head, in my narrow understanding of this topic, (laughs) you know, I just thought you would see them after, but I'm so, I mean, of course we know we need to see people before things. So it's so good that, that you're able to meet with them prior to the surgery. I'm imagining you give them like lots of education and information and get them prepared for what potential outcomes look like. Like, I'm sure you'll tell us all about it, but like, I'm I'm like so in the zone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to tell you all the things too. A lot of this is based on anecdotal experience that I've had with these patients, but also based on the information that I've gleaned from research and evidence-based practice in order to provide the best care for these folks. Awesome. Um, Earlier, you mentioned you work for a large hospital organization. So, you know, in my outpatient practice, it's just me. I'm the only SLP. Um, although recently, and I'm 20 hours a week, we got another 20 hour SLP, but of course she's only there. She's covering the other 20 hours of the work week. So we don't really overlap. So like, are there other SLPs that you work with in this outpatient setting? Yeah, there's, again, it's a large hospital organization that I work for. So in my clinic alone, there's 
probably about eight or nine of us SLPs. <gasps> huge. I know, right? This is probably the largest group I've worked for or with. And they're an amazing team because everybody has their own specialty and they're so knowledgeable and we can pull from each other when we need help. Um, yeah, no, I've definitely been the lone wolf before in other sites. So I totally get it. <laughs> I am like completely green with envy. Like I'm so <laughs> jelly. That does sound amazing. What a treat. Yes. Like that doesn't include, that's just outpatient. That doesn't include like we have a separate vocational rehab. We have a separate acute rehab. We have an inpatient rehab. Um, or I guess that's the same thing, inpatient staff. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a big organization and a big operation. And I, I don't know how many SLPs there are on campus on any given day, but there's a lot of us. <laughs> that is so cool. Nice. Really neat. Okay. All right. So let's get into it. Um, let's start at the beginning. So how does a patient receive a lung transplant? And maybe a little bit before that, why are they receiving a lung transplant? I can make a, a very educated guess that their lungs aren't working anymore, but I'm, I'm sure there's a, a bigger picture there that you can paint for us. Usually these patients are have some, some sort of end-stage lung disease. So whether they have an advanced cardiopulmonary disease, COPD, or they have an interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, or an idiopathic pulmonary reason. Um, so their lungs are pretty much kaput, for lack of a better word. And they are on supplemental oxygen where they're getting maybe four to six liters, um, sometimes even more depending on the severity of the patient. And it's really impacting their quality of life. So they end up... Um, at some point in time, they see a pulmonologist who says, you know what, I think you need to be considered for a lung transplant. And so they might come to my clinic and or the physician group and see them and the, they will go through this long, arduous process where they have to go through several diagnostics to even potentially see if they are a candidate for a transplant. Um, so diagnostics might include an esophagram. Um, it'll likely include a pH study and, and manometry to see how much reflux they have because the reflux is really a big thing, and we'll talk about that a little later. Um, there's there's a whole host of other concerns that they're worried about. Are they ambulatory? Can they handle a six-minute walk test? What does their pulmonary function test look like right now? Could they handle a procedure? Do they have clean colons? You know, they're going to be on... You're on, you're on immuno, you are immunocompromised and on immunosuppressants after a lung transplant for the rest of your life. So you've got to be relatively able to withstand that. Um, so they really do, I mean, patients go after test after test after test to see if they even are contenders for the lung transplant. Um, and in this case, sometimes my patients will even see me at this point in time because maybe they have some dysphagia. Um, and they need an evaluation at baseline, or um, we've been seeing a lot of at-risk patients that are over 70, which many organizations won't transplant above 70 or 75. So we've been doing baseline swallow studies included in that whole battery of tests to see, you know, what does their dysphagia look like at a baseline, and are they aspirating, are they penetrating, what, are they, what does it look like, is it just age-related dysphagia, or is it worse? Um, so I see a fair amount of those patients during that process. Um, Carolyn, yeah. when you're doing these baseline video swallow studies, is it only in the case that they're presenting with dysphagia or is it for every patient prior to their surgery? I think there are some institutions that do them for every patient. I think for my institution, it's more of if they're over 70 or if they have complaints of dysphagia. Or if they've done a bronchoscopy and they find some sort of food particle in the lung. Um, so I'll, I'll get referrals for a whole host of reasons, including those, as I just mentioned. So those patients will be worked up through this like huge, huge process. They get screened by psychiatrists. They see social work. They have to make sure they have proper family involvement because after the transplant, got to make sure that there's somebody to take care of them. And then from there, they, the patient's information goes to a committee who decides, basically decides the fate, whether they can be listed or not. Um, 
And from there, if they're listed, there's a wait window. Of course, you never know when. I mean, as one of my colleagues has said to me, or one of my physical therapy colleagues has said to me, somebody's got to die for you to receive lungs. Like, so it's a matter of somebody who has to die, who's got the right blood type, who's got the right uh, good good capacity for their lungs, whether they're healthy going into it and, and willing to give them up too, like where the family's willing to give them up. Um, so it's not like something you're just like, they're making in a, in a machine and manufacturing every day. It's, I mean, somebody has got to die for you to live. Um, and it's, it's incredible when you think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really heavy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So I'm wondering about the surgical procedure. So you're, are you seeing every patient who will come through your clinic for the lung transplant before they have their surgery? Not necessarily. It really depends on what the team feels the patient needs. Um, so I, I do see, you know, if I, I don't know if I can quantify how many patients because they see so many so frequently. Um, so I don't know how many I actually get that come through my doors. Um, I will tell you there are weeks that I see nothing but that for my outpatient modified barium swallow studies that I perform. And then there are weeks that I don't see any. So it really, it, I think it kind of runs the gamut. Um, the patients will get a call from their provider to say, okay, come to the hospital. We have a set of lungs for you that match your, your antibodies, your whole blood type, all that stuff. Um, and at that point in time, sometimes it's a dry run because the patient has to be within 50 miles of the hospital in order to be, um, to get the, to receive the transplant. But, and sometimes the patient will get there and they'll go, you know what, the lungs, they were actually somebody who was at risk, somebody who was a drug abuser. Do you want to take that risk? And they'll say no. And then they'll go home. Um, so sometimes, sometimes it happens like two or three times before a patient will actually, be there. What yeah. a roller coaster. That that's quite a bit. <laughs> like they're hopeful. They're like, this could be my chance. This will add like X amount of years to my life potentially. And then they get there and it's like, oh, they might not be a viable option for you. Like, wow, you've got to, in my mind, I feel like they would have to steal themselves for that constantly. Yeah. I mean hopefully it doesn't happen that frequently. I know for one of my patients he was he was listed for a long time, and he actually received the call while he was working with our physical therapist. And like, and then you got to be NPO, right? You can't have anything to eat or drink because you're about to go through a major surgery, and um, so you got to drop everything and get to the hospital. So he dropped everything, got over to the hospital, and they said, eh, "This is a dry run." Um, eventually, he got his 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 new lungs, but it took took a while. And I know the physical therapist and I were like, Oh man, you were so close, but it, it happens. It happened. I think people don't realize like, you know, there's a physician that has gone to, let's say a hundred miles from your institution to look at this, this person who's now deceased and decide, are these lungs worthy of, um, they used to call it harvesting, but I don't think that's the right word right now. Yeah, that is a curious term to use. Um, uh, procuring, I think that's the word now. Um, so, I, you know, are these are these lungs worth it? Are they, you know, are they? Is it a drug user? Is it somebody who has a high risk? Um, and you know, is it worth taking these lungs? And and so they there are surgeons that have gone to do that while you are driving to the hospital to wait for potentially hearing. So at the same time, like two things are happening. Um, and so let's say the lungs are good, then they may do the surgery and the surgical procedure. Um, my colleague will tell, says that like, they kind of lift you up like a hood of a car where they do an incision kind of underneath your chest, um, and lift you up and get underneath those ribs to get to those lungs. And then they typically do one side at a time. It's crazy. I love reading. Go ahead. How long does it take roughly? Um, I think it depends. 10 hour typical, like, cause I think 10 hour, I think like, that's a very, very long day. Cause I, I don't know much about surgeries, but I feel like there's 
typically a cap on how long they can go because all the people who are working in that surgery, like they have a max time too of all that standing and working and concentrating. Right. And in many cases, these they're the surgeons at the surgical, when they're doing the transplant, there are probably two or three surgeons present. Um, so they're like one surgeon's doing one side and then when that's good, maybe there are another surgeon's doing the other side. Um, so I think, you know, it depends on the efficiency. It depends on, you know, if everything is quote unquote normal, um, I feel like they can do them in four to six hours. And of course, if somebody needs to be on ECMO or an advanced life support kind of situation for a longer time, then of course it takes a little bit longer. Um, but usually at this point in time, I'm not, I mean, if they're inpatient in, in surgery, I'm not seeing them necessarily. Uh, but it's definitely kind of a, I love reading operative reports because they're so telling and it's just so fascinating to see like what happens behind closed doors and all that. When you say they're so telling, what exactly is it they're telling? They're just describing the situation and like what nerves they might have touched or what nerves they sacrificed or what nerves they didn't touch, um, how they got into the procedure itself, how the patient responded to each of those situations. Um, was there a lot of blood? Was there not a lot of blood? Um, and it's really, it's really kind of, it's just fun to, to read. I, I do that for my head and neck cancer patients too. I like reading the op reports. Nice. Well, like you said, when they're talking about if they had to, what'd you say, like sacrifice nerves or something like that, like that's important for us to know because we need to know, are these nerves that impact part of our, like what we're looking at, or is this just a sensory type of thing? And maybe we can get by with that sacrifice. Like how will this impact what we're there to work on the patient with? Right. And I think the, uh, the lung transplants are, they've got a good thing going for them. They don't necessarily have to sacrifice nerves like they might see in a head and neck cancer patient, but sometimes you still get some really adherent lungs or the lungs are stuck on the fascia or whatnot. And they really have to pull and get to remove. I mean, there, and there's not, a, and we'll get into this again, but there's not a lot of data out there as far as lung transplant and dysphagia and our, my population necessarily, but there is recently an article about recurrent laryngeal nerve damage and vocal cord paresis in this population that was like recently published. But anyways. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep going down our list here. So did you want to touch on what the inpatient stay looks like and maybe some typical acute care needs for this population? Yeah, usually the patient is intubated for however long they are intubated. Um, typically, an inpatient, I'm I'm not involved at all, so I, I do not see these patients. So it is just based on what I read from the chart when the patient gets to me in an outpatient. Um, typically, they ha- will have an instrumental swallow ses- assessment, typically of fees, um, to see how their vocal cords are moving as well as how they're swallowing, um, and usually at the bedside. Um, typically pretty quickly after they've been extubated. Um, and it depends on, you know, the severity of the, of the dysphagia at that point in time with how things are managed from that perspective. Yeah. And um, so with this lung population, we want to be like uber aware of how that swallow function is because these lungs and this surgery is so new that like everything is just that much more fragile. So any kind of infection can just lead to all kinds of ramifications and snowball effects. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Okay. So our next topic is like any ongoing concerns, including GERD, because the reflux is what is the real kicker for this population. Okay. I won't steal your thunder, but I'm like, and I'm warming it up for you. <laughs> I that. And so it's interesting when you do a lit review for transplant and dysphagia, you'll get 56 plus articles on reflux or esophageal dysphagia. Um, and then you'll get three on oral pharyngeal dysphagia. So the oral pharyngeal dysphagia is, I mean, it's not overlooked, but it's not as what you might consider detrimental as like the GERD is. So let's say you do have reflux and you do aspirate the reflux, that has been linked to uh, bronchioobliterin syndrome, which could cause a potential rejection. Um, And rejection is like a whole host of issues that, you know, you might could 
need IV medications for a serial amount of time. You might need antibiotics for a serial amount of time. You might need, might be just a watch and wait kind of situation. Um, and then sometimes it's, 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 it's the end of the road. Um, that's what I was wondering, because in my mind, when I hear a rejection of the transplant, that means your, your body won't accept it and it's constantly fighting it. And then it, it, it won't survive like, with a rejected organ. So I'm really glad you mentioned that that means they might be getting IV medications. Like there's other things that they can do potentially. So maybe they can kind of get through it, but like how, how often do people come back from getting into that zone where they're deemed to be experiencing lung rejection? I think it, it, the answer is I don't I don't have the data. I can look up the data if you want me to. Um, but I, I don't. Is, can we talk like like ballpark? Like, is it a small number who are able to come back? Is it like a just there is no way to tell? You just have to walk through it forward, or is it like it's only a matter of time? I think it depends on the person. I think there are patients that have like severe rejection and have a lot of issues. And, and then there are patients that have like, your lungs may be showing some sort of issue and we need to start doing some of these conservative measures. Um, you know, they find that they do bronchoscopies kind of serially, like uh, in, in, I compare it to like the head and neck cancer world where you do your CT scans regularly after you received radiation and chemotherapy. So they're doing bronchoscopies kind of in a parallel manner where they're doing them every few weeks, every month, every three months and so forth. Um, and they're checking the lungs to see, you know, they're taking biopsies. They're looking to see what it looks like, what's in there, or are there carrots in there? Is there a lot of bile in there? Is it, um, what do they think is causing a possible injury to the lung? All right, good. That, I think that helped kind of clarify that for me. Cool. So, um, the one of the biggest concerns for this population, if I can kind of summarize what we've gone through so far, is esophageal dysphagia and aspirating reflux into the lungs, because aspirated reflux leads to pneumonitis. Mm-hmm. Um, can, uh, so the, there was an article by Davido or Dovido, Dovidio, Sharon Singer. Um, the prevalence of GERD in end-stage lung disease can- candidates for a lung transplant. And they say that GERD may play a role in changing the autoimmune response by creating like that inflammatory milieu. Um, so infection injurious agents include like bile or pepsin or trypsin. And so it's reflux disorder is characterized by a high incidence of proximal esophageal reflux in the nocturnal phase of this, um, to favoring chronic silent aspiration. So as you're sleeping and you get that silent aspiration and you're because you're refluxing and you don't feel it, that's when, and you don't cough because, you know, it's, it's gastric contents and you're sleeping hypothetically, um, then that can really be, that can be an issue. Yeah. So basically a large portion of your population when you're working with these patients is managing esophageal dysphagia? So I don't know. I don't think I'm necessarily managing the esophageal dysphagia because that's really, you know, we get that gets out of our scope of practice. Um, But I think it's something to be mindful of, which is why, like, if I do the MBSIMP profile, I'm always screening for esophageal, um, doing that esophageal screen at the very end. Um, I'm looking at the esophagrams that the patients had because they will, again, have the same test battery of tests that they had before the transplant they will have after the transplant, too. So the transplant team is very, very mindful of GERD and the reflux issues, and they'll do things like a fundoplication where they kind of tie the stomach in a knot to prevent any reflux from happening. Um, so they'll do all these things to kind of prevent that from happening. So everybody is really cognizant of it and really trying to avoid that, that GERD. And of course, we know from an oral pharyngeal perspective that sometimes uh, we can see mild pharyngeal dysphagia because of the re- esophageal dysphagia. So you really have to put on your thinking cap when you look at a patient and say, Hmm, I wonder if this is related to the esophageal dysphagia or if this is something that I can treat. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I think when I think of like managing the effects of esophageal dysphagia, I'm not thinking like we can, we can throw exercises at it or change a a texture and we've made progress. Like clearly that's not going to work. I think what I think of is that you have a working knowledge and understanding of esophageal dysphagia and the different areas that it impacts and how it impacts oropharyngeal and of course, preserving the integrity of the lungs, the transplanted lungs. But I think also like it's our role to provide like, or reinforce that GERD education about like um, using wedge pillows from the waist up, you know, not eating three hours before bedtime, all those other things, which I'm sure they're very aware of, but, you know, just reinforcing those things. So that's, I think what I think of when I think of like managing esophageal dysphagia. So would you say you do those types of actions rather than how we would approach an oropharyngeal dysphagia where we have exercises and texture modifications, all different kinds of things. Really, we're just trying to, I don't know, encourage behavioral. Yeah. And I think sometimes what happens is that these patients, you know, you get your a little bit more heightened anxiety with a transplant and you're like, Oh gosh, what's, when's the next shoe going to drop? Like now I got to be on this immunosuppressants. I've got to be careful. I've got to uh, not eat grapefruit and pomegranate because it can mess with my medication that I'm taking. It, you know, you have all these rules that you don't have to, to remember and, and apply. So sometimes you, you, I get patients that'll come in with a globus sensation and they'll say, Oh, I'm, I'm feeling something stuck in my throat. I'm feeling something stuck in my throat. And you have to know then what's what and which, you know, is that really a pharyngeal dysphagia or an esophageal dysphagia? And you have to be able to be mindful enough to educate the patient. Um, I just just had this happen a few weeks ago. Sure, we'll go with weeks. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> everything's blending together these days. Um, yeah. Where a patient came in and he had had a transplant and he had really thought he had something stuck in his throat. He knew that they, when they had done a recent bronchoscopy, that maybe there was something wrong with his vocal cords. Um, so he was planning to go to ENT. And so I did a clinical swallow and was like, man, I'm not seeing anything from my perspective clinically. Let's do an instrumental. And um, I don't always get an opportunity to do a same day instrumental, but um, for some reason that day, the stars aligned. And so we were able to do a fees for him that same day to look at, you know, again, look at his vocal cord motion and looking at that functioning. And then again, looking at that pharyngeal phase to confirm there was nothing in his pharynx and to confirm there was no micro aspiration that he was concerned about. Um, and so the, you know, the disadvantage of a fees in this case is I couldn't really screen the esophagus, but you know, I could see that there was a lot of retention right up at that PES that like maybe there was just more material that wasn't quite getting through um, and from that perspective, I was able to educate him and say, let's go back to the transplant team. Let's see what they have to say. Let's have them manage this perspective. And then when things get, when I'm here, like when it, things change, um, I'm your gal. But I think you can handle all of this from here. And your swallow looks functional from my perspective, at least at this time. Um, sure, things can change, but uh, you never know. All right. So that's really cool to hear that you have access to both of our imaging techniques, like fees and the video fluoroscopic swallows to care for these patients. Yeah, that's really good. It was nice since his main concern was that globus sensation. And you were like, same day, you were able to do that just kind of, as you mentioned, there's a lot of anxiety, I can only imagine in this population. And so, you know, they're really fearful of bringing on complications. And so if you were able to, to visualize that and to show him and, and give him that feedback that same day, that was probably massive and really, really helpful. Yeah. He was, he was very pleased and impressed. And <laughs> he was like, oh, thank you so much. I'm like, yeah, all in a day, but you know, <laughs> superhero K-Pod, but all in a day. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. We, I love what we're talking about so far, but we are definitely not on track with the outline that you created for us. So, No, that's so good because this is such a good topic. Okay, so let's get into our next area where we want to learn more about 
an understanding of how a lung transplant procedure may result in physiological changes. Sure. Yeah. All right. So we know that there, there are a handful of articles, and by handful, I mean two or three articles in oral pharyngeal dysphagia at post-transplant. Um, we know that there are some issues that you, know, you have going into the transplant, like GERD, tobacco use, and, and cardiopulmonary bypass. That always predicts whether oral pharyngeal dysphagia exists. Um, we also know that a normal swallow physiology is actually a good prognostic indicator for a long-term survival for a lung transplant. Um, and oral pharyngeal dysphagia is not always, as I said before, not always associated with mortality or that bronchioobliterans syndrome. Um, one kind of big study talked about, uh, there are 321, this is by Bauman and Atkins, and, uh, yeah, Bauman, I think Atkins too, and it looks at, looks at postoperative swallowing assessment after lung transplant. The study of 321 patients were referred for clinical swallow evaluation. There are clinical signs and symptoms of aspiration in about 160 patients, so 54% of those patients. They had deep laryngeal penetration or aspiration in 168, um, which is about 67%, and only 81%, oh, I'm sorry, only 81 patients, so 27% had a normal clinical exam, but then still had maybe some deep penetration or aspiration. So the moral of that story was that, you know, clinical bedside assessment may not be good enough to, to do to get enough information. Of course, we know we need those instrumentals. Um, and the other issue is that there may not be enough, uh, there may not be enough pro standardization protocols. And I think that's really kind of what, what we see. Um, but what was interesting about that article is because speech pathologists manage these symptoms, they manage these issues, right? From a, we put a, put a patient on a thickener, we try a strategy. I mean, of course, you know, those are the band-aids, as you will, um, to kind of temporarily fix the patient. And then they probably come to me at that point in time with that band-aid on. And so at that point, we're trying to remove the band-aid. Um, so uh, I love that. Like I do. I sometimes think of outpatient as like removing those band-aids, those temporary measures that were put in place during an acute care stay. And we want to get them to something that's going to be more functional and feasible for their long-term life. And maybe that is like a rehabilitation of their swallow function where they just no longer need any of those band-aids or it's figuring out what might be a little bit more of an appropriate band-aid for their needs. Right. I really like that. That's fun. Yeah. It's kind of fun. I, I'm all about analogies and my patients can attest. I, I they hear the, the whole, whole grouping of them of whatever I got. Um, <laughs> Poor patients. Um, so it's important to look at your patient and look at how they're breathing around their swallow. Like we know that, um, you know, we stop breathing for a couple seconds of the swallow, we about two sec seconds. Um, most healthy people have an expiration after the swallow. So if they, these patients have had Gosh, if they've been on liters of oxygen for years, right, they've been oxygen deprived for so long. So if you think about like, you know, maybe they have some hypoxic issues and maybe they have some cognitive issues because of the hypoxia and there's some data that supports that too. Uh, but also these patients have now not, their pattern of breathing around their swallow may be impaired. So we know that an inspiratory, inspiratory pattern, so if you're inhaling before you're swallowing and inhaling after you swallow, um, and that's going to create that vacuum suck effect and you're likely to aspirate. So working on, on inhaling, holding that breath for that second as you swallow and then exhaling, just knowing that swallowing and breathing relationship um, and watching your patient around the swallow really, in my experience, you know, you're working on that skill-based training to get them back to swallowing in a normal pattern, um, that's really important for them to get off of their band-aid, so to speak. Um, yeah. Caroline, I have a question for you. Sure. When you talk about kind of um, getting them back into this pattern of like, you know, taking a breath, holding it, you know, swallowing, and then having that exhale immediately after the swallow, um, do you guide them through doing basically kind of making that like an exercise that you go over in therapy with them and, and encouraging them to continue that exercise at home for home practice? Is that something yeah, you've done? Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like a modified uh, superglottic swallow exercise, right? 
That's um, what I call it. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was like, I didn't know if I was just changing something like on a lark and this was like just some anecdotal stuff like Leanne was doing, but now I feel totally validated. I'm like, yeah, girl, <laughs> Carolyn's doing it. Leanne's doing it. It's kosher. <laughs> and, and like, you know, I've got, I, these patients are so used to holding their breath for so long that you're like, exhale, go ahead, exhale, <laughs> yelling at them. And they're like, oh yeah, I forgot to breathe. And like, and that's why, okay, maybe you have some residue after your swallow because of it, or maybe you're having that penetration or aspiration because instead of exhaling, you've now inhaled because you're usually short of breath or you, your body is so used to having extra oxygen, those four liters, six liters, that now that you don't have it, your body hasn't quite figured out how to close the laryngeal vestibule and you're likely to have that issue where you're penetrating or aspirating because of it. Um, so even though they were kind of oxygen deprived before, but they've been on um, a nasal cannula and getting that oxygen for a period of time, now they're off of it. Where do you, do you see the, like the concept of air hunger coming in anywhere to kind of interfere with that breathe swallow coordination? And I, I'm going to say yes. And it depends. I think some people still have that clavicular breathing and I know our pulmonary rehabilitation um, physical therapists really focus on some good diaphragmatic breathing and retraining the breathing system as well. Um, mm. So I think that sometimes that happens as well in from a swallowing perspective. Okay. All right. I was just really curious there. Okay. Real quick, I want to go backwards again and touch on that modified superglottic swallow. Um the last part of a typical superglottic swallow is a cough, is a forceful expulsion of air. Um, I do not encourage that. I'm just like, okay, now let the air out. Or maybe like a, like a huff, but no coughing. Um, because when I do that modified style, it's not needed as part of the program for what it's being used for. Um, are you the same way or what do you do in that case? Yeah, I am the same way where I'll tell patients just to blow it out or give a sigh with an exhalation if they really need to. It depends on, depends on if, of course, if they need to cough, they can, of course, cough or clear their throat, do what you got to do. Um, but I definitely, you know, I, I don't use, prescribe the cough necessarily unless it's absolutely needed. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm ready to move forward now. Like I'm giving the superglottic a bad name. <laughs> no, because it's modified. It's modified, modified. Like, <laughs> like I'm not actually doing the superglottic. I'm taking principles from it and right. Because if modified. you think about normal swallowing pattern, like we we do that, we hold our breath as we swallow. We swallow for we hold it for about two seconds and we exhale. And if you're not doing that, then and we got to focus there. You know, we're not going to necessarily work on strength if strength isn't the issue. It's it's that timing or that coordination that we really have to focus on. Yeah, I I feel like sometimes it's that coordination and timing um, that maybe as SLPs we don't get that push to consider and to focus on because sometimes I think that that's more of an issue in a person's oropharyngeal dysphagia than weakness. Absolutely. It, yeah. And so, yeah, when I look for CEUs and continuing ed, like I want to make sure that that's a part of it. Cause I need to learn more about that too. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a need out there to kind of, you know, we need to know that physiology of the swallow and we need to know how, you know, how everything works and why it, it does what it does, but also like, and we, we need to know normal, right? Cause if, Sometimes these patients are, you know, we, as I said earlier, we take at-risk patients. So that means 75 and older who may already have a compromised swallow system because of presbyphagia. And now you've put them in a the hospital, they've been intubated for a long time. Um, and they're maybe a little bit more weak than, than other folks. And you now get them out in the world without, the trans, without oxygen because now they can breathe on their own. And now they, but they have those band-aids on again, and you have to figure out how to, how to strip the band-aid, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And so working on that breathing, working on that pattern, um, teaching them, you know, because the patients with dysphagia that have that inspiratory, inspiratory pattern, that's really more of a problem than, uh, than, than not, you know. 
Yeah. I think my hurdle when I've identified that that could be a, a potential problem for my patient is bringing their awareness to it because I, I don't think anybody thinks um, after a swallow, did I just inhale or exhale? Right. Like, and if, if we overthink it, <laughs> sometimes I think that makes a little bit more of a problem than was there before. So like, in my limited experience, like this is kind of like, this is dicey ground. And yeah. this is where like, it's clear to me, like I need more education and, and discussion about this topic on how to proceed with it with patients. So. Yeah, the whole paralysis by analysis situation, right, where they get like stuck and they're going, oh my gosh, what do I do? Um, but, it, uh, you know, I, McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program is awesome for um, for just kind of some of that good physiology and getting you know, like that normal swallow and then advancing it. Um, that's my plug for them, but I don't think you, I think you could probably pull that out. <laughs> Good. No, this, this podcast is to orient people to helpful resources, whatever yeah. you have found to be beneficial for your clinical practice. Like this is about sharing that with other practitioners. So yeah. MDP yeah. is where it's at for sure. They're, they're, they're that and actually surface EMG is really crucial with this population too. Um, we have a surface EMG and it's really been helpful for them to visualize the swallow um, and see, you know, again, you have to know what a normal pattern looks like on the surface EMG. You have to know what an abnormal pattern looks like. So if you have that, that curve with the swallow where you're seeing that straight up, straight down, and you're knowing that, okay, I'm taking that inhale beforehand and I'm taking that pause afterwards and you have to slow it down so that they understand if they've got to breathe and they've got to exhale, um, that visualization is like a million. It's just worth worth it for like. Wow! Yes, yes, I love that. Um, I really like that idea too. Okay, so with the surface EMG, it's measuring the um, recruitment of the muscles or the intensity of the contraction of the muscles. Right. Okay. So it's and. In a way, it's the speed with which they're contracted, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we want that quick, strong swallow. So it's kind of giving you that feedback whether or not you're achieving that desired, quick, strong, coordinated, ideally, mm-hmm. swallow. Right. And we can go back and look at, like, how long did it take you to swallow? It's, was it less than two seconds? Was it greater than two seconds? Um, we can look at um, the data. Like, sometimes what happens is patients will have just a pharyngeal contraction and that surface EMG will pick that up. And that's not actually a swallow because you're picking up that muscle activity and muscle movement, but that, but you have to know whether it's a swallow or whether it's just muscle movement. Um, and you have to be, go ahead. How do you differentiate between the two in a session? Um, sometimes I'll say to the patient, was that a swallow? Okay. <laughs> we'll say, no. Okay. Let's try that again. Um, what are they doing? Um, are they just like tensing those muscles mm-hmm. or yeah, just tensing? Why? Now I'm curious. I'm like, what are they doing? Why are, why are they activating <laughs> those muscles? They want to just hit the target on the surface EMG. They go, oh, I'll just squeeze a little harder and make it go a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and that's where you have to be that skilled clinician where you go, mm, we're not doing that today or we're not worried about those high numbers. Um, cause then you'll also see like, you want that, you want that kind of, uh, V shape where it goes straight up, straight down with the surface EMG. But when you see a pharyngeal contraction, they're actually like almost the lines are almost right on top of each other. And it's a really narrow angle versus kind of a, a V shape as I just called it. Okay. So you see something you're probably suspicious of, and then you clarify it with the patient and they kind of confirm your suspicions. Yep. <laughs> Okay. A lot of like my neuro patients too, where I'm like, mm, was that really a swallow or not? No. Okay. Let's, let's try that again. And then we walk through the, let's inhale, let's exhale. Let's practice that breathing again around the swallow. And yeah. Yeah. Kind of fun. Um, I think we have about five minutes left. Okay. So as we're kind of wrapping up, what other topics do we want to touch on? I mean, is there anything that we can really even open up now with like five minutes left? Yeah. Um, or do you just want to kind of expand? You know, we we talked about how breathing and swallowing anatomy is altered post-lung transplant. Um, oh, maybe you can touch on how lung volumes 
I was going to say, it might be worth mentioning, like, you know, a lot of the dysphagia literature and CO, there's more data with like the COPD population and dysphagia. So a lot of the times I look heavily onto that literature for management of the dysphagia too. Yes. Yeah. Cause you had, you had mentioned like, oh gosh, there was a large number of literature targeting esophageal dysphagia in lung transplants, but like a handful looking at oral pharyngeal dysphagia in lung transplant. So what do you do when there's not a whole lot of evidence to work off of? And yeah, you had a really important note in there that you're going to um, make those connections based on the literature that is there and using the information that's present with the COPD population, because a lot of what their problems are mirror the population that you're working with. Cause well, they were, most of them may have also had COPD before their lung transplants. Right. So apples to apples. So you really have to look at the data that's, that's out there and say, oh gosh, you know, there's not really a whole lot on like, I mean, there are literally three articles on oral pharyngeal dysphagia and lung transplant. And two of them, and I don't mean to dig at the authors at all, but the two of them are, are basically reporting the same information in two different ways. Um, mm. So it's not really, it's like they just kind of rebranded it and it's the same article. Um, so it's. So basically they, they use the same data. They didn't like do a different study. They just used the same material from the same first study and just wrapped it in a different package. Yeah. Put a little pretty bow on it. Yep. <laughs> I'm a fan of pretty bows, but. <laughs> uh, okay. So talking about the lung volumes effects on their pharyngeal swallowing physiology. Um, looks like Roxanne Gross and Charles Atwood did a study kind of looking at the lower lung volumes and the amount of subglottic pressure that you need in order to swallow. Obviously, not obviously, that's, that's kind of a mean statement, but like the tr- presence of tracheostomy may absolutely change that subglottic pressure. Um, and in, and I, it's worth mentioning that sometimes these patients post lung transplant in the acute phase may end up with a tracheostomy for some period of time, um, depending on how they're doing and how they're recovering. Um, so we know that patients with lower lung volumes, if they have less air in their lungs, they're likely to have um, more issues as far as swallowing is concerned. However, the, this study also says no aspiration or penetration was observed on any swallow for any lung volume. So, um, so maybe they have more issues kind of from a pharyngeal perspective. Yeah, their pharyngeal activity duration was a measure of their hyoid motion onset associated with phase transition time period. Um, so the measuring of how long it takes them to swallow. It may take them a longer time to swallow because because of that, that planning and that need to get all that air closed. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier that like, you know, if there's lower lung volume, would that impact the amount of like subglottic pressure during the swallow at all? Would that somehow impact the pharyngeal stage or the, like the, after the swallow, you know, we're meant to be exhaling after the swallow. So if there was like, residual penetration in the laryngeal vestibule, maybe it's not being removed like it might be with a typical exhale and it's just increasing the risk factor for um, eventually aspirating penetrated material or other pharyngeal residue. I think that's probably an accurate statement. Um, you You know, if the patient has those lower lung volumes, they may not be able to have a strong enough cough in response to material in the airway. Um, and they also may not be able to, they may need that reserve, that pulmonary reserve so that they can hold their breath while they swallow. Um, yeah. All right. Sorry. Well, very cool. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth, you know, again, these patients are complicated. There's a lot going on with them. And you really have to look at all the data that's out there and what these patients are needing. Of course, you take the patient that's in front of you and you treat them 
you know, the best that you can based on the information that you know. Um, since there isn't really a standardization for treatment of these patients. So it's worth kind of reviewing that a little bit too. Yeah. Um, listening to you kind of describe the, just at the very beginning, if they're being considered as a potential candidate to receive a lung transplant, all the meetings, all, I don't want to call them hoops to jump through, but like qualifiers that they must meet, um, it's so much. And then, and then life after the transplant, um, you're immunosuppressed. You have to restrict your diet. You need to be super conscious of GERD. I mean, and that's probably just a couple of the many things right. on their plate. <laughs> right? It's like my end of the world and my corner of the world, right? It's not necessarily like, oh, the physical therapy or occupational therapy or, you know, the inherent risks of if you have an operation like this, you could have a stroke. So maybe you have also a stroke related issues or, you know, and, and there, maybe your body can't handle long-term immunosuppressants. Like you, there's so many, like, again, my corner of the world, and then maybe a little bit of a survivor's guilt too, where you like, again, you, you've been given the gift of life by somebody who's passed away and what an amazing gift to receive, but it's still that like, Oh my gosh, I have somebody else in me away. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a minefield. Like it's so much medical complexity and things to be aware of. And then I go back to you saying there's essentially there's not a, su a sufficient amount of research on this area for speech and language pathologists. And it's like, um, hello, <laughs> you guys. Yeah, if I had more time in my day, there were, I would totally be doing some data mining. I just um, one day I hope to get there. But there's um, one of me, and there's a lot. A lot of people that I treat and see, so it's just so. There's only so much time in the day, and again, there's only one of me. <laughs> so true. Oh man. Well, Carolyn, this was wonderful. This was so informative. I really enjoyed this talk. Thank you so much for putting it together and coming on the podcast. And we've got all of your references and all that research that you do use that does inform your clinical decision-making skills. We have that up in the show notes on speechuncensored.com so that you're welcome to go and dig into it and um, learn more about working with this population. Yeah. Well, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate the time and being able to share and, and hopefully teach and people will receive the information well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 